0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Hello and welcome to Rory Sutherland's On Brand, brought to you by Alf Insight. In each episode, we'll talk to the big names from the world of advertising, marketing and media, to dissect and debate success, ingenuity and future possibilities for our industry. Now today, in a departure from perhaps the last two programmes, my guest is Simon Griffiths, who is co-founder and chief executive of Who Gives a Crap? It's an ethical, sustainable toilet roll brand, one I've actually used myself actually, Um, And they donate 50% of their profits to help build toilets and improve sanitation in the developing world. So Simon, all the way from Australia, welcome to the podcast.
2: Yeah, thank you. It's lovely to be here. Now, you were actually
1: founded in 2012. I only came across you, I must admit, I think it was through um, uh, actually Save Money, Cut Carbon, uh, which is a sort of British uh, membership shopping club uh, for ethical products. And I think I've, I've used your product um, quite a bit, actually, recently. Uh, not as much as you'd like, because I've got a <laughs> Japanese toilet, uh, which actually cuts down on the need for extravagant amounts of toilet paper. But we can probably discuss that <laughs> a little later. Um, so I, I understand you, you, it, it um, dates back to 2012. And it started when you discovered that there were 2 billion or 2.4 billion at the time, people on the planet who didn't really have access to a toilet. And you you pretty much literally uh, staged
2: a sit-in. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. (laughs) We're going straight there, which is great. (laughs) This is a good place to start. (laughs) Tell me the story. I I need to know about this
1: fantastic sit-in.
2: Yeah. So we, you know, 2012 um, wanted to start, you know, this toilet paper company that used half of its profits to to help build toilets. And um, back in 2012, you know, the, the internet was a different place to what it is today. Um, And so we, we saw there was an opportunity to start crowdfunding just as crowdfunding was, you know, becoming a kind of a new concept, a novel concept. And it was kind of perfect for us because we had about, you know, $1,000 to our name and 700 friends on Facebook. So we didn't know enough people to kind of create a new brand and we didn't have enough money to, you know, start doing above the line advertising. And so we jumped on a platform called Indiegogo, realized we were crowdfunding probably the most boring product ever, you know, no sexy piece of technology kind of insight. And as a result, someone that works on the campaign had the genius idea that, I should pledge to sit on a toilet on a live web feed until we'd pre-sold the first $50,000 worth of product. And so that was how we we got started and um, got enough eyeballs on the campaign to find our first 1,000 customers and get our first $50,000 in the bank. It took 50 horrible, never, ever to be repeated hours of my life. Um, you know, we did 2.5 million social media hits, went, went fairly viral just as kind of the, the share button was added to Facebook and... Um, just an amazing way to get started. Um, so yeah, no regrets. Although every now and again, I still do get a pain in my, in my right calf from, um, from, you know, the nerve damage that's been done to my leg. (laughs)
1: Funnily enough, it, 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 there's a thing called Calvin Klein syndrome, isn't there, which you can get through. I think it was it, 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 it originated through tight underpants where you get you do get literally nerve compression damage. If you do. I mean, the one advantage of doing a sit in on a toilet is, of course, at least you've got a toilet. Yeah. Which isn't true. Uh, you know, true. Other, other sort of sit ins and protests uh, have the sanitation
2: problem. But uh, I can imagine you still get actual sort of flashback pain. Yeah, it's it's really fifty hours, really interesting. Usually, I, I've, I've you know, it's it's um history in the back of my mind. But you're right; every now and again, I sit on a chair in the wrong way for too long and get taken back to um, that horrible leg pain that I had that you know led me to get checked out for deep vein thrombosis in my mid twenties, which apparently is the youngest that the specialist I saw had ever seen anyone. <laughs> Right, that's that's probably
1: a, a useful advice uh, to everybody listening, <laughs> not to try the same things themselves. But um, I, I'm totally intrigued. So you got you got your fifty thousand uh, dollars. You've got to tell tell us about the name. I think it's a pretty good name actually, and it's highly distinctive, and it also probably does which nobody what nobody's done previously, which is actually to make toilet roll or of course as it's officially known toilet tissue i think that toilet tissue is one of those things that nobody has ac- actually ever spoken yeah. in spoken english it's a phrase that exists only on packaging <laughs> you know i don't think anybody said i think we've run out of toilet tissue um uh, but but um, tell me about how you came up with the name as well,
2: yeah, so I mean um, I'd sort of been thinking about you know different social business models for a while, I guess when the when the idea came about, and um, I was really interested in you know how we could work with products that everyone used regardless of where they were and everyone needed you know it wasn't a, it wasn't a product that that wasn't needed um, because I don't think we need more things in the world than you know what's absolutely necessary at them at this point. Um, and um, was thinking about you know products that everyone needs regardless of where they are and how we could use profits from their sales to fund back into projects um, to, to do great things in the world. And one day, you know, after kind of mulling on this idea for about six months, walked into the bathroom, saw a six-pack of toilet paper, said, oh my God, we should sell toilet paper, use the profits to build toilets and call it who gives a crap. And I called three friends and they all said, that is an awesome idea, you've got to do it. And the third friend said, you've got to do it and i want to come and help and so we met up at a supermarket and looked at the you know the, the shelves saw all the puppies and the feathers and all the things that were completely unrelated to toilet paper that were on display and said hey you know there's an opportunity here to actually talk about what the product's used for do it in a really fun way and cut through with marketing but but use you know use that message to talk about a very serious problem that exists in the world that's just not getting enough airtime and so that was the the silver bullet
1: I think it's also in a brilliant Australian tradition of incredibly direct naming of things, (laughs) because I think you have you have the big snowy mountains, don't you? (laughs) Which I think is lovely. You know, they're big and they're snowy. So we won't we won't come up with some elaborate, uh, you know, and fanciful name. We'll just call them. And of course, the very fast train. You, you you have that as well, which I like, because <laughs> every other country in the world in France is the train de grande vitesse and the uh, high speed train, we have to call it in the UK. But in Australia, it's the very fast train, <laughs> which I think is. And so I think that directness, I think, is, is, uh, is great. There was also uh, famously, um, uh, I think, an advertising campaign in Australia for the Beef Marketing Board, which simply had car stickers that just said, Eat
2: more beef, you
1: bastards.
2: Yeah, that's um, (laughs) Um, (laughs) some of our final work, I think, is definitely in our... Yeah, um...
1: (laughs) I I think it's magnificent. Because everybody else feels the need for some indulgent self-aggrandizement when naming a product or something. (laughs) But just calling it what it is, I think is magnificent. It is presumably... tell, Tell us... A little bit about the intricacies of making toilet paper. Who do you go to? It's recycled, presumably, from recycled paper. Yeah. So
2: we we produce um, two main SKUs. One one's recycled, and the other's made from from bamboo. Um, so, yeah, you know, sustainability kind of front at mind with, with everything that we do. Um, so, yeah, getting started, we, uh, we actually looked at, at teaming up with one of the local Australian manufacturers. And then just as we went to, um, you know, sign on the dotted line of basically doing, a you know, what was a cause-related marketing campaign, essentially, where we put a, a sticker onto every pack of theirs with, you know, the Who Gives a Crap brand on it and donated some money. And we'd want a grant to kind of roll this program out. Um, which would fund the donation. And the idea was that by working together, we'd build a relationship with a producer. We'd um, have product in supermarkets and start to see if we could drive behavior change by having a donation embedded into the transaction. And as we went in to, um, to sign on the dotted line of this partnership, the producer said to us, you wouldn't believe it, but in the last week, you know, one of the major supermarkets has slashed prices of commodity items by 30 to 40%. We're no longer profitable. We don't know if our business is going to be around in the next six months. There's no way I can sign off on this campaign. If you want to pull this off, you need to go and find a, a Chinese manufacturer because that is the future of toilet paper in Australia. <laughs> and so we actually got told, you know, to, to look overseas for our manufacturing and had nothing, you know, no idea how to do um, imports or exports at, at that point in time and uh found someone who um you know one of the the three founders had worked with previously who was based in asia and and looking after chinese sourcing for another um sustainable home products company and he gave me a crash course and and um yeah one day called me up out of the blue and said you wouldn't believe it but the world's biggest toilet paper trade show is happening this week in qingdao if you want to find your producer you've got to get here you know before friday and i think this was on tuesday lunchtime So I was on a plane to Hong Kong Tuesday night, got my passport rushed to the border first thing on Wednesday, got it back, you know, just before dinner on Wednesday evening, crossed the border on the last bus out, slept at the airport in Shenzhen and then flew on a plane the next morning to Qingdao to arrive at, you know, what was the world's largest toilet paper trade show with, you know, two or three football fields side by side sized stadium full of, um, you know, Chinese toilet paper manufacturers rubbing toilet tissue on their face to show you how soft it was it was one of the most surreal experiences in my life but kind of amazing to to get there and realize that you know we were going to bring our business to life because we'd finally found someone who could manufacture for us
1: <laughs> oh this is a joy so they um uh, you sourced from somewhere in China is that both the bamboo one and the recycled one
2: yeah that's correct so at the moment we manufacture both in China we've we've also just turned on um, Malaysian manufacturing more recently and are currently exploring domestic manufacturing. So depending on when someone um, listens to this, we might have actually moved manufacturing closer to our customers at that point. But today, that's how we're set up at the moment.
1: Oh, interesting. Um, now, tell me, this is um, how, you, how quickly did you start to expand outside the Australian market?
2: Yeah, so we, you know, as I said, we had our crowdfunding campaign 2012 Started officially selling products 2013 in Australia. And then we moved into the US and the UK in 2017. So we're about four years old in both of those markets today. And then uh, we opened up our first European warehouse in December. And we just um, have opened up Canada recently as well.
1: It's interesting because you may get a few people, I'll just
2: explain this.
1: Uh, You may get a few people listening going, well, hold on, you know, What's ethically sustainable about shipping toilet paper uh, halfway around the world? Yep. I think it's probably worth making that point, isn't it, that the shipping of non-perishables um, over huge distances actually per item uh, when it's done in uh, at huge scale adds very, very little carbon um, uh, to the actual uh, uh, the the whole process is that fair? Yeah, that's
2: that's um, a pretty good summary. So you know, basically, yeah. um, ships are about eight to ten times more carbon efficient than trucks. Um, so in particular, in a country like Australia, where you've got a very um, disparate population, the carbon footprint of manufacturing in Asia and shipping into Basically, each of the major cities and then shipping from warehouses there to our customers with trucks works out roughly the same as as manufacturing in one place in Australia and then sending product all around the country in trucks. The carbon economics are not as good in the UK. So um, in the UK, there's definitely a stronger incentive to move to domestic manufacturing, which is something that we're working on now from a carbon perspective. Um, and then the US sort of sits you know, closer to Australia because it's a much more much bigger country. But um, if you were manufacturing something in Europe and trucking it into the UK, that would be, you know, pretty not not so great from a carbon perspective. It's interesting, isn't it? Because,
1: uh, funnily enough, uh, there's a very interesting thing about this, which is the guy who who effectively came up with the penny post. You would naturally and instinctively think that the cost in postage is proportionate to distance. And I only discovered this very recently, and it fascinated me. The person who realised you could economically run a penny post system where the price of a letter was the same. In fact, in Britain, it was, first of all, all over the UK in 1840. And by about 1900, they had this imperial penny post, which was it cost one penny to send a letter anywhere in the empire, except Australia and New Zealand, in fact. Mm. And it seems completely counterintuitive. You know, why should the distance make no difference? so little difference to the price and the reason is of course that over long distances you have massive consolidation so if you're if you're driving you know literally 20,000 30,000 letters from London to Edinburgh that cost is actually trivial per letter compared to the cost of collection and then last mile delivery that most of the cost and hence most of the carbon is in fact in the last mile it's not in the Uh, node to node. And what's fascinating is the guy who worked that out for Sir Roland Hill was the genius mathematician uh, Charles Babbage, who was also the originator of the first difference engine or computer. Mm -hmm. But it took a mathematical genius to actually understand something that intuitively seems wrong, because there were Um, flat rate postal services before that, but they were confined to London, for example. And it took Babbage to realise you could extend it nationwide because the cost per item, per mile, once you consolidate things... Actually makes distance kind of irrelevant, so I always think this is interesting because it 's the precursor of I, mean, I suppose containerization was the physical internet in a way in terms of uh, you know how you distributed things yeah uh, there are economists who say that containerization was the really big idea of the twentieth century
2: yeah. Um, I think the, you know, the, the kind of modern example of this that I think is really interesting is, uh, you know, sustainability is kind of having to go really deep on this. But the one that I find really interesting is, um, um, you know, online supermarket deliveries. So if you're receiving a delivery from a supermarket and the supermarket is using its own van, which is often the case. Then um, it is actually much more carbon efficient for you to receive delivery the, from the supermarket than it is for you to drive to the supermarket and buy your own goods, and that sort of seems counterintuitive to a lot of people. So, um, yeah, sustainability on this stuff I think is really interesting because it's it, and of course it changes with scale, doesn't it? Totally.
1: The more deliveries they're making, then effectively yeah, sorry, I, the lower I, the carbon. I sort yard. of left that point it, out it, 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 because
2: there's many. No, no, on but the it, it is. Yeah. <laughs> It is one of
1: those fantastic cases where um, what seems intuitively obvious, gosh, these vans delivering groceries must be effectively adding to carbon consumption. But of course, compared to every single individual making a trip to a supermarket, um, you can if you route it cleverly. And uh, Ocado actually in the UK does a, a very clever thing where they have a thing called the green van. And if you choose a delivery time where there's a green van on the calendar, that means there's already someone near you having a delivery at around about that time, or it's very suitable for the route of the driver. So if you lived very close to delivery point, you'd probably be encouraged to have a delivery either early in the morning or towards the end of the day. And that then minimizes the miles they have to travel.
2: Yeah, I love that. Um, That's great. But...
1: It is actually a wonderful case in the sustainability universe where what outrages people instinctively, sometimes they're right. Sometimes, you know, sometimes, you know, fruit being flown in from Chile. Yep. Pretty big carbon footprint on that. Their instincts are right. But there are other cases. Funnily enough, it was something with the Australian wine industry. The Australian wine industry always suffered in the UK slightly because people said, well, half the money I'm spending must be on shipping the wine from Australia. And it turned out that compared to shipping it from France, I think you were paying an extra 10p or something or maybe 15 yep. for the transportation. Yep. And everybody was going, well, I don't want to buy Australian wine because I'm basically paying, you know, uh, shipping costs. Yeah. And it was ma- mathematically it was kind of wrong. But I mean, this is one thing the sustainability industry will have to contend with, which is that it it isn't necessarily that simple. I mean, I've just bought an electric car. Um, but I'm conscious of the fact that uh, quite a lot of carbon goes into making the damn thing.
2: Yeah, um, it's, it's a really, really um, interesting space and, um, you know, fraught with kind of assumption bias. So it's very easy to assume that one thing is better than another, but you have to sort of peel the layers of the onion back. I think the the biggest thing for us here that I think is worth, worth mentioning is that, um, you know, the the other thing about our company is it's not just... People buy from us not just because of what we're doing today, but because they trust us to continue making the best decisions in the future. So we may be suboptimal for someone to buy us today compared to, you know, another another product, say, in the UK. But the long-term game for us is that we will continue to improve and get better and better and better And ultimately kick the butt of everyone else that that someone would be able to buy from but the way that we get there is by starting to manufacture first in china because we need to hit the minimum order quantities to be able to start manufacturing domestically in the future and so that's um again that can feel really counterintuitive because um by supporting our business which you know may be a a small sacrifice on carbon in the short run will allow us to get to the scale where we can start to really Um, you know make huge improvements in the future
1: funnily enough i wonder whether people instinctively understand this Uh, roger l martin uh, there is this trend towards buying smaller brands so there's a kind of uh, you know you see it a huge to a huge extent both in australia and the uk in niche food products that You know, whereas perhaps in my childhood, the big brands were the most prestigious brands. There's this whole trend towards, you know, what I sometimes call local luxury. You know, you buy wine or some speciality food stuff that's produced very locally. There's a great bit of advice from Roger Martin, um, Roger L. Martin, who is the dean of the Rotman Business School at the University of Toronto, where he says one way of actually practising ethical capitalism is to slightly fight the Pareto distribution or to fight the winner-takes-all effect. So if you're relatively indifferent between a very big brand and a smaller brand, buying the smaller brand just levels the playing field a bit. Because there are winner-takes-all effects as well as things like economies of scale. Uh, Distribution tends to be disproportionately weighted towards the, the biggest brand in the market. And you get this famous... Ehrenberg effect, where the brand leader tends to be twice as big as the next competitor. And Roger Martin argues that one very simple way of practicing ethical consumerism, if you're not really that bothered, is to kind of buy from a slightly smaller competitor to keep the heat of competition up and to prevent the major brand resting on its laurels. And I think I'm intrigued by whether people are starting to do this, you know, whether people are starting you know almost consciously whether it's motivated through that or whether it's just status or uh, the urge to buy something distinctive people are perhaps a bit more individualistic than they used to be but we can see that trend all over the place i think and it's it's very you know you know there were two crisp manufacturers. Do you call them chips? you call them, no, you call them <laughs> crisps, don't you in Australia. But there were basically two crisp manufacturers in my childhood, and the boutique crisp makers were nowhere. And the explosion and that kind of thing is, mm-hmm. is, is really quite interesting, because it, it does seem to follow a pattern. And, you know, it would have been much, much more difficult, I suspect, 25, 30 years ago, being a kind of boutique Toilet paper manufacturer.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think you could have been a boutique toilet paper manufacturer. I think that's the no. that's the beauty of the internet and the age that we're living in now. That what we've done has become possible, when it probably wasn't possible, you know, even fifteen years ago, twenty years ago. Um, but but I think yeah, p- playing out the you know, if you always buy the um, the 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 non market leader, what what happens in ten years then when the market leaders? Um, have been eroded and and now maybe you're in second place does the cycle go back around and um you know how do the incumbents do the incumbents die or do the incumbents have a second wind and and come back when they are now in second place
1: <laughs> I think it's in Microsurfs isn't it one of one of the characters refers to uh almost buying brands because you feel sorry for them. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a very sort of, it's a very meta form of of consumerism, if you like. But, you know, a brand that you feel, you know, its best days were behind it. You'd occasionally (laughs) buy it out of pity. I don't think too many people do that. I mean, but it is worth noting that the two, you know, the two really powerful forces in human behavior are habit and social proof you know, you you buy what you've bought before and you buy what everybody else buys. Mm. And so pushing against this a little bit, you know, I I weirdly have an Android phone because it strikes me, you know, in the advertising industry, that (laughs) practically makes you a sexual deviant, you (laughs) know, know, not having an Apple phone in the ad industry. But there's a bit of me which occasionally practices perversity because I think that, uh, you know, some some areas of kind of brand dominance are... form of uh, you know almost mass hysteria you know in some cases
2: yeah I mean Um, I feel like you know the internet sort of led to this proliferation of brands and now there's you know millions of micro brands in a way that wasn't possible 10-15 years ago Um, and so I wonder if I wonder if that will be something that that continues as a trend or whether the proliferation of micro brands means that now people will become less brand loyal but but perhaps you know it's human instincts that we want to um have social proof or um yeah that'd be interesting to see how it plays out
1: talking of mass hysteria we had this panic buying of toilet roll how did you fare during the pandemic how did both manufacturing and distribution hold up yeah um and, and and you had fairly rapid growth during the pandemic, is that right?
2: Yeah, it was, um, you know, kind of a um, a once in a lifetime phenomenon for a toilet paper company. But in a way, um, you know, I think our team sort of realized that, that it was kind of this moment that we'd been training for, for the six years, seven years prior. You know, we were a, an online toilet paper company with a, a distributed workforce. So everyone was already working at home. And I think our team realized that, um, you know, after we sold out, which was, kind of, cra- you know, crazy exponential growth. I think we our sales were up one day, you know, 2x on a day prior and then 5x a regular day and then 12x a day after that. I think on the 4th of March, we were going to do a 20 to 30 times, sorry, a 30 to 40 times regular day of sales, so, so more than a month in a day. And we had to move our website to sold out. And when we did that, we set up a, a, a wait list so you could find out when we were back in stock. And we thought we'd get a few thousand people signing up for that wait list, but actually ended up with more than half a million people on there, which is um, kind of a mind-boggling number when you, you know, are a relatively small business trying to service that many customers. Um, but our team, I think, realized that if we could solve that problem and figure out how to get toilet paper to the most people possible, it would result in an amazing donation come end of financial year. And so everyone jumped in and, and rolled up their sleeves trying to figure out you know, how to break the back of it. And uh, I think the end solution was taking our big 48-roll boxes and repacking them into smaller packs. So we had more orders that we could ship out. We hired and trained 25 freelancers in a week so we could triple our customer service volume. And then we also set up a a secret invitation-only version of our website and sent just enough email invites out every day to take our warehouses and our careers to their maximum limits, basically before the wheels would fall off. And so we ran this secret online toilet paper club for about eight weeks. You know, probably the coolest club of 2020, and uh, officially came back into stock in in June, and then made a, a 5.8 million dollar donation at, at June 30, which was sort of the icing on the cake for everyone's hard work. So, kind of an amazing amazing outcome to um, to be able to turn that into impact. Um, but yeah, quite a quite a roller coaster ride. <laughs>
1: It's very it's very interesting, of course, when you have those shortages, because to mainstream economists, the answer is very simple. You have, you know, supply and demand. And when uh, uh, when demand exceeds supply, you simply ramp your prices up. Yep. (laughs) But what's interesting about that, of course, is that in economic terms, it makes perfect sense in terms of customer loyalty. It's a catastrophe because, first of all, uh, first of all, whether rightly or wrongly. An economist would say this is because people are wrong. I would argue it's because uh, uh, capitalism is much less transactional and much more relational than economists like to think. Um, Your existing customers would regard that as a monstrous betrayal and they would expect preferential treatment. In fact, people who'd been a customer of yours in the past uh, it was rather like that famous Sydney experience where you had a kind of terrorist outbreak in Sydney and Uber ramped its prices up and people said, no, 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 that's not fair. Yeah. And there seems to be a strong human ethical sense that using other people's misfortune to profit is not really acceptable. Yeah, you know, that that actually effectively capitalising on other people's misfortune or need isn't an ethical thing. So with, for example, the grocery delivery services in the UK, obviously the demand for them rocketed probably about tenfold uh, under the pandemic. And most of them had systems where their best past customers got preferential treatment over people who were simply now coming along out of desperation rather than because they were customers of delivery services before. And similarly, you have that question where rationing almost emerges as the perceived fair solution. Yeah. And so and so you had that secret where you had a, effectively a secret code to access the website and you were able to drip out access to the website in manageable quantities so that nobody felt they were being treated unfairly or that there was any price gouging
2: going on. That's exactly right. And you sort of hit the nail on the head with you know the returning customer experience and wanting to look after people who... Yeah. Uh, what we call sleeping subscribers so they they're not a regular subscriber who actually could still order from us through their subscription portal because they you know have an existing subscription um, but they're one-time customers who behave like subscribers and order very regularly but don't want the you know a subscription because they travel or um, have two houses or um, you know, get anxiety when the word subscriptions mentioned, whatever the reason. And so we wanted to make sure that, our um, our, our great, you know, one-time customers were actually looked after and then we could prioritize them through the wait list was sort of how we managed that. Um, and so that was, um, I wish we'd had you on our team who was helping to solve that problem. Cause you probably would have helped us to get there much faster than we did. <laughs>
1: I'm intrigued, actually, by the subscription problem, because I think um, it makes sense in many ways. But what the problem you face with subscription is people effectively get what we might call direct debit anxiety, which is you already probably have direct debits to credit card companies, you have it to a satellite provider, and you begin to feel after a time that half your salary has disappeared, uh, you know, a a week after, after you're paid. Um, in these kind of recurring expenses and I think it's a fear of loss of control I think there's scope for somebody to launch a subscription portal through which you can manage all your subscriptions in an ideal world you could also coordinate deliveries so they all arrived on the same day uh, even better still in the same van yeah love it Um, because I think that I think there is this problem with subscription fear which is you know You know, I I notice it with magazines. I've repeatedly talked to the spectator. I write for them. I said, look, we've got to find other ways of somehow either making this flexible, because at some point people reach, you know, a ceiling of direct debits with which they can no longer quite cope. And then they basically stop. And I said, we've got to work out other ways in which people can subscribe to magazines online, um, because effectively, if, if, if you weren't there early enough, in a sense, the door's closed, mm. and I'm I'm really intrigued by this question of subscription because it does offer convenience. It's a great idea. There's a, a business called Liminal in the UK which is seeking to use sort of artificial intelligence to manage frequency a bit better. Because I must admit, I do have too many Harry, Harry's razor blades. Yes, <laughs> you know, I, <coughs> I didn't get <coughs> I didn't get the real dates and qualities quite right to begin with. Yeah. I don't know what the answer is, both in terms of, you know, consolidating deliveries, but also making the whole thing cognitively manageable. Mm. Because, you know, there are a lot of products for which it makes a lot of sense. Uh, You know, razor blades being another one, perhaps. But uh, if you don't get the actual quantities in order right and also don't cure this paranoia problem, whereas you say, well, I'm going to be on holiday that week. Mm. You know, I don't want fresh food arriving.
2: Yeah, uh, pe- people just feel okay. This is cognitive overload now. Totally, and I think that you know that's the number one reason that we see a customer churning out of a subscription into a one-time order from us, and why we think it's so important to offer both of those options. Because subscriptions are great for some people, and they, they're just not a good fit for other people for lots of different reasons. But I think the you know the future of commerce will be an experience that is so seamless that having a subscription or not having a subscription doesn't really impact, you know, how quickly you can order something or how often something shows up. So, um, you know, thinking about um, we're getting a lot closer now with, you know, the way that mobile payments have been sped up in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. Um, Alexa, Google Assistant, all of those things, we're getting closer and closer, but there'll be a lot more innovation in that space over the next couple of decades.
1: I mean, there is a halfway house, which I always recommend and very few people try, which is effectively Amazon Prime, Mm. which is you pay a certain amount up front and you get a discount on all future orders, which is, if you like, a piece of customer commitment where patently through sunk cost bias, someone who pays that uh, amount is at least willing to buy a lot from you in future, but it doesn't commit them to a schedule of time. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't effectively force them into a level of quantity they may not want. So I've always thought that Amazon Prime solution.
2: Yeah. You know, and,
1: and Join our club, as it were, has some virtues, actually.
2: Yeah. And, and um, there's benefits there around, you know, having things arrive at the same time or on the same day as well. So, yeah, there's a lot that, that you know, can be learned from Amazon, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that, that was a very interesting Amazon Prime because uh, when Bezos uh instigated it everybody else in amazon hated the idea and he had to force it through but of course the argument i make is that if you don't have amazon prime with free delivery for a certain annual fee um actually you can't sell to the same people a lot because nobody minds paying you know 10 people don't mind paying three pounds for delivery once a month but one person really minds paying three pounds for delivery 10 times a month. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I actually think this, this very interesting maths thing applies to things like car parking, because I've always argued, look, the price of a car park should be lower for locals than it is for tourists, for example. You know, if you visit a town once and it costs you £5 to park, well, it's a bit expensive, but it's not a deal-breaker. You know, I'm not going to not go into York because of the £5 cost of parking. But if I live in York and I have to pay £5 every goddamn day, that turns out to be about £600 a year. So having a system where if you're a more frequent car parker, you can pay 50 quid a year and then, you know, it's 2 quid, seems to me basically just... Because although in economic terms, there's no difference between 10 people buying one thing and one person buying 10 things, practically, uh, there's a very, very big difference. And we probably instinctively feel that more frequent purchase deserves some sort of discount or commitment deserves a discount. And so I'm, I'm intrigued by it because it's an area where loads of people are tentatively exploring, but no one's quite, it's like micropayments.
2: No one's really cracked it yet. Mm. Yeah, I guess it comes down to, to what behavior you're trying to incentivize or, or, you know, if the objective is to achieve a a perfect economic market. But, yeah. Mm.
1: no, and of course, in your case, I mean, you have the additional reason, which is that 50 percent of the profits. How, how do you actually fund the toilets, by the way? What do you use in terms of? What's the most efficient way of funding toilet provision?
2: yeah, I mean the the approach that we've taken there, and I should I sort of caveat this by saying we're we're reviewing this strategy now we've got a new head of impact that's come in, but the approach has been to sort of build a portfolio of um, of organizations that we work with similar to a share portfolio. So you want to have some some blue chip, you know really reliable tried and tested stuff that. You trust a lot, and that's a you know a big chunk of the portfolio. And for that's for us, that's organisations like WaterAid, who um, you know very good organisation, does great work. We also then want to have some some higher risk, high return stuff that you know could shift the needle and pay off in a big way. And for us, that's organisations like Sanergy, who are in East Africa and work in the urban slums. And they basically have you know above ground toilets where you can seal up canisters and remove the waste and take it away for offsite processing. They use black soldier flies to consume the waste and then turn it into a, a, a money stream by selling either fertilizer or um, or chicken feed basically. And uh, if they can get the cost of providing toilets down to about ten dollars a head by offsetting some of it with the revenue they make from from you know converting waste then it becomes cheaper for the Kenyan government to basically provide toilets to the 8 million people living in the urban slums than it does to allow the sanitation problem to exist. So super interesting organisation. It's a big bet. You know, if it works, it's 8 million dollars, sorry, 8 million people with access to sanitation quite quickly. If it doesn't work, then it's probably a few thousand people that they ultimately end up serving.
1: But it's a clever mix of, of what you might call small stakes, certain you know, cert bets yeah. and slight outsider bets yeah. every now and then, which seems again, you're you're escaping the Pareto distribution. And so <laughs> I think it's it's a good it's a great thing to do. Yeah, that's a very, very good way of doing it. I mean that sounds fantastic.
2: Yeah. Um, and then the the final part of the portfolio we make up is um usually organizations doing really great work, high return work with relatively small budgets and we're funding them directly with smaller checks. And we need lots of those to be able to absorb, you know, large amounts of money. And so that sort of builds out the whole kind of portfolio that we work with today.
1: I've got to ask this question. Um, Have you had to adapt your branding and the humor and the name from country to country? How do Americans react to who gives a crap? For example, I notice Americans are always a bit more sensitive to swearing than Brits or Australians are. (laughs) Um, uh do, 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 have you have you had any pushback from certain markets
2: or yeah, or not yeah it's a really good question i think when we first started you know um when we started i was based in in australia one of the australian co-founders had moved to los angeles and our third co-founder is is from the east coast of the usa um and so we always had you know uh, the us kind of in our line of sight I also grew up in the UK, so I was born over there and my whole family's British. So the UK was the other kind of market that made a lot of sense for us. Um, We always honestly thought that the American market would be the harder market from a language perspective. And so when we decided to go into America, we tested out, you know, different brand names and pointed kind of ads at them to see if they converted differently, found that they were roughly converting, you know, about the same, didn't seem like it was statistically significant in terms of a difference. Um, but our hunch was it, it, you know, wouldn't work, but we said the benefit of having a single global brand will be so much more than, you know, a 10% dip in sales in the U S. So let's try the single global brand initially, and then see how it goes. We ended up launching in the U S in 2017. Um, other notable things that happened around the same time as us going into the U S was the election of a new American president. And, uh, Trump coming into power actually um, kind of meant that what was printed on the front front page of the newspaper changed pretty quickly and I think almost overnight it felt like the vernacular of America kind of shifted a little bit and um, um, the term who gives a crap kind of took on a, a meaning that was almost you know part of the zeitgeist at that point in time and so in a way I think we got very lucky as a brand to Um, to be in the U.S. just as that vernacular was starting to shift and all of a sudden our brand name actually kind of became a little bit more relevant and accepted. Um, Did we get pushback? Yeah, we did. Um, But probably uh, just as much in the U.K. as we did in the U.S., which I think is really interesting. And seeing some of that early pushback come in, it actually reminded me of the first few years in Australia where we had the same thing. And I think um, what that sort of meant made me realize is that as a brand that's kind of pushing the boundaries and doing something that's on the edge of being unacceptable you kind of have to hit critical mass before you know the people that don't like it all of a sudden say well this is here to stay and you know there's not much i can do about it and they accept it and move on and then you just become a part of you know the 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 ecosystem moving forward um, and so we certainly felt that happen in both. So the, so the pushback is
1: presumably a bit about,
2: I don't want my kids
1: seeing this. Is it? Yeah. And of
2: course that still exists, but um, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a small number of people um, with that particular problem. And for us, we've always said, you know, the, so many people love the brand name that the, the pros outweigh the cons and we're willing to to roll with it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, I, th- I think it, I think it's 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 always going to be a slightly divisive. It's very strange that swearing thing. I mean, I never bothered about. It. I swore in front of my kids. I used to brag. You know, she's only twelve, but she's got a swearing age of fourteen. <laughs> you know, um, but um, I noticed that I, it's something that that actually divides households extraordinarily. I mean, my brother in law lived in Los Angeles, and he said the bizarre thing about Los Angeles is that. Um, You would have these people in LA and the film industry who'd host these kind of coke-fueled parties and then drive home, you know, under the influence of pretty heavy drugs. But he said, woe betide you if you said shit in front of their teenage children. (laughs) Or even worse... Smoked a cigarette. That was that was absolutely considered beyond the pale to smoke in front of a kid. But on the other hand, when children weren't present, their moral values completely shifted. It, and also, you've got to watch swear words. I'm not, One little tip for everybody listening, by the way. Uh, if you're a Brit or an Australian, don't use the word twat in the United States, because <laughs> in the UK, it's pretty it's pretty light. OK, it's a stronger version of twit. OK, now, literally, we know what it means, technically, like the French word con. OK, but the French word con does and doesn't mean what it says in the sense that it means this guy's an idiot. Right. And we use twat pretty routinely. And I once used it in the United States. <laughs> and, you know, I said, you'd feel a bit of a twat. And it was like it was like basically people. It was like an H.M. Bateman moment. People were falling off their chairs. <laughs> what the hell's going on here? And so you do get you do get these very different standards, and they vary actually from household to household as well as country to country. But I think you're right. I think being on the edge of what's acceptable isn't a bad place to be. It gets you noticed. Yeah. Now, has, does it prevent store distribution, or are you deliberately staying as a direct direct consumer business anyway?
2: Yeah. The, the one other thing I'll say on that is you know we did find that the the, the brand vernacular had to move ever so slightly. And so we ended up moving our our marketing team, creative team into the US. And so that's where, um, you know, we've built the bulk of our kind of creative team because we found that what worked in the US was generally acceptable in the other markets, but that didn't necessarily flow in the other direction. And so that's been part of the, you know, global expansion strategy, which has worked relatively well. Um, Yeah.
1: And so your 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 employees are nearly all distributed. There's no particular. Do you, do you have a head office? You presumably have some office space, do you? But we um
2: we have co working spaces in Los Angeles, Melbourne, and then we have a Filipino team that come together kind of um, once a month. They don't like to come together in a co working space because the traffic's so bad during the week. So they prefer to do things on the weekends together. Um, and that's kind of how we you know how we bring the team together. Um, and then, yeah, the, the American team is the same size as the Australian team and, and our Filipino team is actually the largest hub that we have in the world now. So um, more team members there than anywhere else. Um, but, yeah, your question of, you know, um, brand in store, has it kind of been any, uh, any issue for us with the brand name? And n- not to date, but we also haven't played any of the, the major retailers yet. Um, so that's something that, that may be in front of us. Today we're in, you know, a lot more kind of independent grocers and um, smaller, smaller chains rather than, you know, the 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 brands with many hundreds or thousands of stores in them. Um, so that's something that's in front of us. We've chosen to focus on digital or direct consumer to begin with because we found that um, that's where we can tell a richer brand story. We can put more layers into the brand and tell the story from many different angles through the different channels that we have to communicate with the customer in a way that's much harder to do, you know, in that 2.5 seconds or whatever, whatever it is that you have to make up someone's mind on the supermarket floor. Um, so yet to come.
1: I should say, by the way, and this is, I think, something we've always got to be alert to, we tend to see ethical products as functionally inferior. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a sort of heuristic, which is it's kind of the environment, so it's probably not as good as... Uh, cleaning my dishes and to be honest actually early ethical products were guilty of this and there were certain ethical products I can remember buying uh which you know frankly didn't do the job and actually uh, I'd certainly say of using your own product that uh, you know jolly good purchase it actually does a really really good job um do you do you often have to counter this where people feel there's an automatic trade-off between self-interest and the environment and that we have a we have a job to break this heuristic rule uh, you know electric cars have done it in a way haven't they in the sense that you know the acceleration is spectacular they're really quiet they're kind of better cars um, but uh, we still have this kind of assumption you know if it says gentle we read that not as gentle or kind but you know slightly ineffectual yep
2: <laughs> yeah that's really interesting i think i think the um You know, as a founding team, our experience was that we wanted to buy products that more closely aligned with our ethics and our values. And we felt like when we did that, we were often making a compromise on product quality or on price or on customer experience. You know, the branding was hideous and and didn't have, um, you know, didn't have beautiful packaging or, or whatever it was. And so we've always said, you know, can we design things that that make people look and feel great to use them whilst also, yeah. you know, building a brand around them that, that someone will love? Um, and if we, can, if we can get all of that right, then that's when we can start to create something that people would want to shout about the rooftops from. And so that's the mission that we've certainly been on. And as we add new products into our portfolio moving forward, you know, that's the goal is to kind of, hit all of those notes, it has to look great, feel great to use and, and do good too. And if we get all three of those things, that's where the special sauce is.
1: Now, I think it's really important because I think it happened quite often, I think, the very first adherence of any movement, and this could include vegetarianism in a, in a sense, want to signal self-sacrifice. Yeah. And that can actually lead to products which never really scale. I mean, I, I've got a friend who's been vegetarian since the 1980s. And he said in the early days, vegetarian restaurants, he said, he, he'd eat vegetarian food at restaurants, but he'd never go to vegetarian restaurants. I said, well, why not? And he said, because vegetarian restaurants are basically run by people who don't like food. Yeah. You know, there was a kind of austerity to them, almost a self-imposed hair <laughs> yeah. you know, And actually what you see now is that brands like Beyond Meat are effectively not talking that language of self-denial yeah. which i think i think is quite important because ultimately we we're, we're, you know every purchase we make is a bit selfish yeah. you know i'm not i'm not i'm not i'm not one of those people who believes that you know it's pure self-interest and it's simply a price utility equation but at the same time there's a limit to how much we'll give up functionality to make a point, particularly in an area where, you know, toilet paper, a toilet paper failure is... You kind is, of want it, it to
2: work. <laughs>
1: yeah. You kind of want <laughs> it to work, yeah. Yeah. And I also think it's a good point that design, well, I, I was going to say design costs nothing. That's absolutely not true. But per unit, design costs nothing, mm. effectively. You know, once you've got great packaging design, which people are too reluctant to pay for, by the way. I'll just say that in defence of our colleagues in the design industry. People people are too willing to pay for advertising because it's expensive and too um, parsimonious when it comes to paying for design um, because design is something you genuinely come to own. You know, advertising is, to some extent, attention you rent. Mm. And so, you know, I will say that, that getting the design right doesn't really impose an environmental cost. and It adds repeatedly to the pleasure of use and ownership totally and um uh you know so great design is to some extent a large part of the solution to uh you know more sustainable consumption
2: i think you you um, hit the nail on the head with vegetarianism i was i was a vegetarian for most of the 90s and the early 2000s and um you know it's um we we still don't eat much now but the products that are available the restaurants that are there you know it's a It's an amazing, (laughs) an amazing change to what it was 20 years ago. The other
1: great thing, weirdly, is that veganism, even if you're not a vegan, does us all a favour because a restaurant now has to have one or two vegan options and one or two vegetarian options, which means that even if you're choosing at random, the odds that you'll choose a plant-based or or at least non-meat meal go up, the choice Mm architecture is fundamentally changed when you eat out. You know, there used to be that one very sad... Ve- it was a bit like in Indian restaurants. They always used to do an omelette and chips for people who didn't like Indian food. <laughs> but that was the only choice, you know. And quite often there was this single sad vegetarian option. And now there's a completely different approach to it, which makes the whole choice very, very different. You know, I'm not vegetarian, but I would probably eat a meat-free or even actually a, a dairy-free meal um half the time yeah. at a restaurant
2: something like that no, I'm the yeah. same I'm not vegetarian anymore but more than half of our meals at home and restaurants would be vegetarian or vegan for sure
1: uh, it, it, and so I think I think this is interesting which is that ethical consumerism was kind of about I mean it was it was a, it was in a sense it had links to sort of you know puritanism um, and I think you've got, in a way you've got to lose it because the number of people who derive pleasure from that uh, they're very, very loyal and committed, but the trouble is that you know they will always be five to ten percent of the population.
2: Yeah. I think, and I think that you know the um, the shift that we've seen in the quality of vegetarian offerings, it feels like that's where we're at now with the shift in the quality of ethical businesses, and so you know we're we're about to have the Beyond Meat, Oatly kind of version of of ethical businesses in the decade ahead. Which means there's going to be some pretty pretty amazing opportunities out there for for customers, but also for brands to play in that space.
1: And so, I mean, how do you tell your story? I mean, are there ways in which the packaging, uh, uh, you know, uh, tells the story? And, and also, if you're selling DTC, do you uh, do you actually, you know, company sales with stories of the difference you're making?
2: Yeah, we, we, we do. Um, so we talk a little bit on the packaging about, you know, the, the impact, but in a relatively lighthearted way. And then usually twice a year we do a bigger sort of impact deep dive, which is um, on our website and through social media and email channels. Um, I think we've we've tended to, to say, you know, most of our customers probably don't want to hear about, you know, the depth of impact that we're going to every time they pick up a pack, they want to, they want to see some of the other attributes of our personality shine through. And so we kind of think about, you know, one of our, our founders, Danny talks about building brands as, as, um, trying to find someone that you want to sit next to at a, a dinner party. You don't want them to just be interested in climate change or just be interested in, you know, the orphanage that they're funding in Africa, of course, you want them to care about the climate and, and doing good in the world, but you also want them to be able to crack a good joke and give you a compliment when you need it and be able to talk about design and, and you know fashion and all sorts of other stuff as well and so if we can build that multifaceted brand persona through all of the different you know communication channels that we have with the customer. That's how we try to build, you know, a rich brand message and um, something that customers want to interact with.
1: And so, w- what's your ratio of sales now at the moment? How much is direct? How much is is through smaller retailers?
2: It's about ninety five percent direct still, um, and wow. higher in the UK than it is. You know, it's probably about ninety percent in Australia and ninety seven percent in the UK, um, and then the US is about ninety nine percent because we haven't done too much um, sort of grocery outreach there yet. Um, that's something that I think will shift over the next couple of years as we start to move into a more kind of omni-channel sales strategy. Um, but today, yeah, pretty much everyone buys from us online.
1: And um, you, you will shift to multiple channels. You probably have no choice if you want to scale up, I guess, at a certain level. But um, uh, you've got plenty of countries to expand to. You mentioned Canada, is that right? Yeah,
2: that's it. And um... and the, I mean, the you know, the growth strategy for us has always been about 2 billion people globally without access to a toilet. Um, if we're going to put a serious dent in that yep. problem, we have to s- scale the crap out of the company essentially. And that means being wherever the customer wants to buy us and, and being in as many countries as possible. So going global and, and going into to retail channels, um, for us, the question has never been, should we do that? It's just a question of when should we do that? What's the right time? Um, and so we've focused on international initially and, and now we'll start moving into more of omni omnichannel mean, play in the future. That is a fantastic place in which to end. Well, Simon, thank
1: you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Um, that's all for this episode of On Brand. The podcast is brought to you by Alf Insight. And for more information on powering your business growth, visit their website at alfinsight.com. That's alfinsight.com. Uh, The series is produced and edited expertly as ever by Ultimate Sound and Vision. And to make sure you receive the next episode, please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then to help some algorithm or other, uh, please give us a like. See you next time. And all that remains for me to say is thank you very much for listening.